Hello, and welcome to Dissecting Philosophy with Dr. MacDonald. In this episode, I'll be reading and discussing the sections The Child with a Mirror and On the Blissful Islands in Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And I'll also be discussing the examples of Michael Moore's documentary Fahrenheit 11.9 and the film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind to accompany the sections. So let's get cracking on. The Child with the Mirror Then Zarathustra went back into the mountains, and into the solitude of his cave, and withdrew from mankind. Waiting like a sower who had scattered his seed, his soul, however, became full of impatience and longing for those whom he loved, for he still had much to give them. This, indeed, is the most difficult thing, to close the open hand out of love and to preserve one's modesty as a giver. Thus, months and years passed over the solitary, but his wisdom increased and caused him pain by its abundance. One morning, however, he woke before dawn, deliberated long upon his bed, and at length spoke to his heart. Why was I so frightened in my dream that I awoke? Did not a child carrying a mirror come to me? Oh, Zarathustra, the child said to me, look at yourself in the mirror. But when I looked into the mirror, I cried out, and my heart was shaken, for I did not see myself. I saw the sneer and grimace of a devil. Truly, I understand the dream's omen and warning all too well. My doctrine is in danger. Weeds want to be called wheat. My enemies have grown powerful and have distorted the meaning of my doctrine, so that my dearest ones are ashamed of the gifts I have gave them. My friends are lost to me. The hour has come to seek my lost ones. With these words, Zarathustra sprang up, not, however, as if grasping for air, but rather like a seer and a singer whom the spirit has moved. His eagle and his serpent regarded him with amazement, for a dawning happiness lit up his face like the dawn. What has happened to me, my animals, said Zarathustra? Have I not changed? Has bliss not come to me like a storm wind? My happiness is foolish, and it will speak foolish things. It is still too young, so be patient with it. My happiness has wounded me. All sufferers shall be physicians to me. I can go down to my friends again and to my enemies too. Zarathustra can speak and give again and again show love to those he loves. My impatient love overflows in torrents down towards morning and evening. My soul streams into the valleys out of silent mountains and storms of grief. I have desired and gazed into the distance too long. I have belonged to solitude too long. Thus I have forgotten how to be silent. I have become nothing but speech and the tumbling of a brook from high rocks. I want to hurl my words down into the valleys, and let my stream of love plunge into the impassable and the pathless places. How should a stream not find its way to the sea at last? There is surely a lake in me, a secluded, self-sufficing lake, but my stream of love draws it down with it to the sea. I go new ways, a new speech has come to me, like all creators. I have grown weary of the old tongues. My spirit no longer wants to walk on worn-out souls. All speech runs too slowly for me. I leap into your chariot storm, and even you I will whip on with my venom. I want to sail across broad seas like a cry and a shout of joy until I find the blissful islands where my friends are waiting and my enemies with them. How I now love anyone to whom I can simply speak. My enemies too are part of my happiness. And when I want to mount my wildest horse, it is my spear that best helps me on to it. It is an ever-ready servant to my foot. The spear which I throw at my enemies, how I thank my enemies at last I can throw it. The tension of my cloud has been too great. 
Between laughter peals of lightning, I want to cast hail showers into the depths. Mightily, then, my breast will heave. Mightily, it will blow its storm away over the mountains, so it will win relief. Truly, my happiness and my freedom come like a storm. But my enemies shall think the evil one is raging over their heads. Yes, you too, my friends, will be terrified by my wild wisdom. And perhaps you will flee from it together with my enemies. Ah, if only I knew how to lure you back with shepherd's flutes. Ah, if only my lioness wisdom had learned to roar fondly. And we have already learned so much with one another. My wild wisdom became pregnant upon lonely mountains, upon rough rocks. She bore her young, her youngest. Now she runs madly through the cruel desert and seeks and seeks for the soft grassland, my old wild wisdom. Upon the soft grassland of your hearts, my friends, upon your love, she would like to bed her dearest one. Thus spoke Zarathustra. So we initially have Zarathustra having went back into the mountains. That follows on from the end of part one and the section bestowing virtue where he says he was going to leave everyone to his doctrine and leave that to his followers and go back into the mountains again. So here we have this following on where he's back in the mountains and being living quite peacefully and happily in the mountains and becomes even more wise than he already is reflect upon things as you do when you have all that nice space to think about things but then of course comes the point of well he needs to be stirred and moved away back down from the mountains again and what exactly stirs him what exactly makes him come out of this this peaceful state that he's in in solitude is that vision that he sees in a dream of the child holding up a mirror and the mirror showing that image of himself as demonic and that evil sneer and grimace of a devil as he says and then what does all that mean of course you get that right in the next line that my doctrine is in danger and so we have the sense as well that what Zarathustra has ultimately said and his ideas about things in his own opinion has become ultimately distorted. And we can see that in the whole process of what Nietzsche is trying to say here that when you have a specific idea, then you leave it for months and years, as he says. What's going to ultimately happen is whatever that person said is going to change transform and be manipulated to fit into different let's say agendas and outlooks that it doesn't even necessarily haven't originally even been part of or argued for and we can just go into the whole thing about just completely hijacking someone to argue for a point of view or in the sense of just taking one person's viewpoint and distorting it completely from what it says altogether. And of course, Nietzsche's own philosophy is a fantastic example of that because we have basically that very idea of Nietzsche's own philosophy having become hijacked by Nazi Germany. And what exactly happened there was that they took the idea of the Superman and used it as an example for everyone to aspire towards as an example of the Aryan race and that's that whole image that they had in Nazi Germany of blonde hair, blue eyes, white skin and so forth. This whole picturesque image of exactly what everybody should aspire towards and of course does Nietzsche's own philosophy fit into the whole idea of Superman and anti-Semitism of course not. As I've said previously in a past episode as well, Nietzsche fell out with his sister and got into heated arguments and so forth with her because she was the anti-Semitic person in the family. And Nietzsche's own idea of the Superman is not at all this whole 
distorted idea that we have that sometimes that is a superior form of like divinity or godlike idea that everyone should aspire towards because that would in itself not understand Nietzsche's criticisms against the whole movement towards metaphysics and ideal and what exactly does Nietzsche want out of it all and what does the superman represent is man has reached a state of pessimism and ultimately moving towards this focus upon death and the afterlife and so on and historically we can trace all that way back to Plato that Nietzsche is going to argue and what does the superman ultimately represent is a possibility in which man can be overcome as he keeps on repeating as well throughout Zarathustra and why does man need to be overcome what does that mean what we're going to get towards is ultimately getting out of that pessimistic state back to much more a life-affirming view for things much more focused on the world and living life now rather than on a future state and on death and so we have this whole idea of people are distorting what i say here we come up with a complete like say false image about what i've said i need to come out of the mountains and challenge what people say because this is not what i've said whatsoever so it's in the sense of zarathustra coming down to sort of correct people about how they've been manipulating what exactly his doctrine's been and we also sort of then having a sense of purpose again and the joy of the fact that he's found a use again to come back down and out of the solitude in the first place and becoming so happy that he can then be of service again and of use that his joy is almost as he says like a a lake that goes into a river that then goes into the ocean that is just going to be basically spilling forth all this information and wisdom and joy that's all going to be coming out of him and then we also have the remarks that people are going to think that I'm evil or the people who have previously called me friend might call me enemy and it's also to say well people not necessarily going to always agree hold heartedly with what someone says and that over time as well or months or years we can have precisely that whole view of you might initially really love and read and adore someone and then over time you just think actually no I can't believe I really like that person no I don't like that at all now I don't like what they stood for I don't like their opinion I don't like anything at all but that's obviously a really good positive thing as well because we've changed our own opinions changed our own ideas about things and it's precisely that point as well isn't it but that we never should ever become enamored with someone to the point we hold them up to an idolatry state like we could do with prophets like say like Zarathustra there in the book or with other people that we idolize like celebrities it's actually to take that little snip to go actually what you love now you actually might end up completely hating later and you may think that this person that you adore now is absolutely heinous as an individual later and it's always to show that fragility in what we uphold and believe to be true and uphold and adore and love as well is also incredibly fragile and it's not very strong whatsoever because we ourselves like to change our ideas and like to change what we love and Nietzsche almost humorously says as well if only I knew how to get everybody back on my side with shepherd's flutes and to say in the sense of it would be fantastic if everybody managed to have the sort of pied piper flute in which you can then just lure everybody back onto your side and so you have that little bit of sense of humor and a bit of egoism maybe coming out there of if only I could just get everybody back on my side that actually was going to change and then we get this fantastic image that rounds off this wee section about the lioness learning to roar in the sense of it's when our opinions and our ideas become comfortable we're able to then develop and argue for those beliefs and opinions in the first place and then of course what happens is 
young is born from that and say, well, one idea that you have and some that you argue for will then have a knock-on effect to then allow for other ideas and opinions to then emerge. And what's going to happen is it's going to go through that barren desert-like plain and to say well it's exactly what happens with Zarathustra it's got to go through this whole sense of anguish and rejection and just striving for it to be argued for a position and then you'll reach potentially the grasslands there he says once all that's happened and overall for the section for child with the mirror we can say well Nietzsche is making a really interesting point by having Zarathustra himself having gone back into the mountains and then having a need to come back down from the mountains again. He must get in some great exercise going up and down all those mountains again. But what can we say is happening really on a deeper level here? We can say, well, there's almost an argument to say we don't need philosophy all the time and we don't really need philosophers all the time and to say well what what exactly is Nietzsche getting at by that is that we can just have a philosophy and its ideas and then that's taken up and bored by people and then developed and thought about and argued for and so on that's all wonderful but it's almost like well it's like a great buffet at that point in the sense of, well, somebody's managed to create a great idea and then everybody goes and has a nice buffet of an idea. But it's then also the sense of, well, what makes philosophy have to have a purpose? What makes Zarathustra need to come down from the mountains is to say in a way, well, it's when things become distorted. It's when things need to be challenged. It's when things start to become manipulated. Then in comes philosophy and the need for philosophy. Why is that? Because philosophy then helps us to challenge this distortion, asks us questions is, why do we need to think of this view? Do we have to think this way? Is it always been thought this way? What are other different possibilities of thinking here? So these are critical questions that then start to pop up and emerge whenever something becomes distorted and manipulated. And a great documentary, I thought, to illustrate how we can challenge things when they become distorted or manipulated and we can have that role for philosophy to take place again is Michael Moore's documentary Fahrenheit 11.9. And this is a wee brief synopsis as well from Wikipedia. The distributor describes the documentary as a provocative and comedic look at the times in which we live, referring to the 2016 United States presidential election and subsequent presidency of Donald Trump. The documentary also explores two questions, how the US progressed to the Trump presidency and how to get out of the era of the Trump administration. Apart from the Trump administration, the documentary delves into some events that Moore believes are connected to or inspired by Trump, such as the 2014 Flint water crisis orchestrated by an appointee of Governor of Michigan, Rick Schneider, who changed the source from Lake Huron to the Flint River, leading to unacceptable levels of lead in the water and the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in 2018 which resulted in the March for Our Lives protest across the United States calling for gun control measures and criticizing politicians who receive campaign donations from the National Rifle Association. He also criticizes Barack Obama's visit to Flint for not living up to expectations of the people of Flint who expected to receive federal help after the visit. So that's enough of the wee synopsis that we can have a wee discussion about it. So apart from dealing with the whole Donald Trump side of things, I was thinking what's really great about the documentary as well is, is precisely that analysis that he does for the whole Flint, Michigan situation with the unacceptable levels of lead and water, in which to say you can have the whole idea of 
then obviously you have a problem of lead in the water but then having the governor try to say that it's not as bad as what people are saying and then also you have that moment in which you have then Barack Obama visit and everybody gets really excited because it's kind of like the people versus the governor because the people are experiencing a harrowing situation that precisely they know themselves that there's unacceptable levels of lead the fact that they try to also cover up when it was done for tests and for bloods and how much lead there was and all the horrible effects it was having on children and so on then in comes barack obama of course and people are like just overjoyed because they think barack obama is a savior of course and to then hopefully gonna relieve the problem slinch it back to lake huron and not the flint river which is having all the problem in the first place and you think fair enough you made the switch the simplest thing to do would be to switch back but they don't of course and obama actually drinks or at least wets his lips as they say for the water and then that just makes everybody gasp in the audience when you see it as well like oh no suddenly here's a man who's meant to have a sense of protecting us he's the leader of our country but actually he says it's perfectly acceptable and backs up exactly what the governor said and so it's that whole sense of well feeling helpless as well for the people and continually trying to fight just to have clean water and the absurdity as well is that whole fact that it's one of the largest water resources for America as well comes that comes out of there and that they themselves are struggling just for fresh water and what is so important about that of course is the whole aspect of where does philosophy come in philosophy comes in through that whole aspect of showing the manipulation you could potentially have in the media side of things and especially the government side of things trying to put a spin on it that is actually acceptable levels of drinking water when of course it's not and then it goes to then showing the documentary all the problems that people have been having and of course having a knock-on effect with housing problems and so on all to do with the fact no one wants to move there why not because of the problems of water and so that's kind of an interesting point in and of itself i think to say well you don't have to just always go to philosophy books to get good philosophy happen and into sense of that you don't need to just go read plato or read khan or any of these big philosophers or any of their books and so forth what does philosophy ultimately entail it almost goes back into this point that nietzsche makes here is that once we have a critical engagement and process of critical thinking take place that in itself is philosophical and philosophy itself as a discipline is not exclusive to being able to have that alone as the par excellence let's say of being able to do it the absolute best there's other different people and different disciplines and approaches that can all take this approach of being critical and have a critical reflection upon things as well moving on to the next section then on the blissful islands the figs are falling from the trees they are fine and sweet and as they fall their red skins split i am a north wind to ripe figs thus like figs do these teachings fall to you my friends now drink their juice and eat their sweet flesh it is autumn all around and clear sky and afternoon behold what abundance is around us and it is fine to gaze out upon distant seas from the midst of superfluity once you said god and you gazed upon distant seas but now i've taught you to say superman god is a supposition but i want your supposing to reach no further than your creating will could you create a god so be silent about all gods but you could surely create the superman perhaps not you yourselves my brothers but you could transform yourselves into forefathers and ancestors of the superman and let this be your finest creating god is a supposition 
by what you're supposing to be bounded by conceivability. Could you conceive a god? But may the will to truth mean this to you. Everything shall be transformed into the humanly conceivable, the humanly evident, the humanly palatable. You should follow your own senses to the end. And you yourselves should create what you have hitherto called the world. The world should be formed in your image by your reason, your will, and your love. And truly it will be to your happiness, you enlightened men. And how should you endure life without this hope, you enlightened men? Neither in the incomprehensible nor in the irrational can you be at home. But to reveal my heart entirely to you, friends, if there were gods, how could I endure not to be a god? Therefore, there are no gods. I indeed drew that conclusion, but now it draws me. God is a supposition, but who could imbibe all the anguish of this supposition without dying? Shall the Creator be robbed of his faith and the eagle of his soaring into the heights? God is a thought that makes all that is straight crooked and all that stands giddy. What? Would time be gone, and all that is transitory only a lie? To think this is giddiness and vertigo to the human frame, and vomiting to the stomach. Truly, I call it the giddy sickness to suppose such a thing. I call it evil and misanthropic. All this teaching about the one and the perfect and the unmoved and the sufficient and the intransitory. All that is intransitory that is but an image and the poets lie too much but the best images and parables should speak of time and becoming they should be a eulogy and justification of all transitoriness in the initial discussion then we have zarathustra have the whole example about figs and so what's interesting is the relation of him being like a wind to ripen the figs that's there in the sense of what is Zarathustra's own philosophy going to do is ultimately lead us into an enjoyment of the world and love of the world to the extent we're going to eat luxurious fruit and enjoy the taste of the world basically is a nice little metaphor and then after that we have the repetition of the words God is a supposition that occurs quite a number of times and it's quite an important line as well because a supposition means that it's a belief held without proof or a certain knowledge and that's really interesting when you have that argument to say well god is a supposition because traditionally at least within philosophy you can have the complete opposite argument of that that actually god does have proofs and you can go through several different examples within the history of philosophy to say that God exists. And of course, there's those great counter arguments to say, well, if God does exist, then show me exactly how God exists. And then there's that great contrast in the argument to say, well, obviously, you can't just say God exists and you can just see him everywhere or it everywhere or God everywhere. Rather, God is something that has to be proven logically and then you can go into different things and examples through various different proofs and arguing that God exists rationally and we can therefore argue that God exists from that. And one quick proof is famous one from St. Anselm and there's one that Descartes repeats as well and it's simply the idea that God is the highest idea that we can possibly have of and then because it's so perfect and because it's so absolute that God ultimately must exist and Descartes argument from that as well is that who provided the idea of God God did because it could be only God that gives us that idea because only a being that perfect could cause its idea in the first place within us so on the opposite end of the scale then from Nietzsche's point of view we have the argument that God is based upon a supposition which is the opposite way to say well God is based upon faith rather than a logical proof 
that God exists. And so when you ha say that God exists through a faith example, then there is no proof for God's existence. And that's not to therefore criticize someone who believes in God, but you could say, well, because there is no concrete proof that God exists precisely shows the power of someone's faith in belief that God exists through that continual reaffirmation of their own faith in the idea of God and the afterlife. And a good philosophy about faith and argues for the fact there is no concrete proof for God's existence is of course Kierkegaard's philosophy and a very famous idea within Kierkegaard is that notion of the leap and precisely the leap of faith in your own knowledge and reasoning there into as he calls the absurd and is that concept and say because it goes beyond all logic and reason and rational thinking about things therefore you have to make that leap in your own judgment into believing that god exists and again showing the power of someone's faith there into their belief in the idea of god but what's interesting as well what nietzsche does is that he says well every time we have a relation into the idea of god then we always come back into humanity and basic reflection of the human condition and one example there of course is could you create a god so as to say well could you really create something that is so absolutely supremely perfect so absolutely divine and it's almost as it's like a theological argument that's also made for the idea of god that is to say because god is so absolute it goes beyond all human comprehension in the first place to even touch upon the very idea of what god is because as soon as we try to think of the idea of god we then start to humanize that idea and put qualities to it that is precisely human and is not divine anymore so i good example of that is of course if you try to think of the idea of god then you just end up with precisely a figure that very much looks like socrates with a beard and a toga and so forth but is that the idea of god no not really but it makes it so of course that we are able to understand such a vast idea like that and so infinite and such thing that's absolutely perfect like the idea of what god's meant to be as well and that also goes into the point about could you conceive of a god because then of course whenever you try to conceive of something so absolute what we then do exactly what Nietzsche says we then make it humanly conceivable humanly evident humanly palpable and we should follow that human aspect of ourselves and that whole way in which we follow our own senses and so Nietzsche precisely is having that argument away from something completely divine towards back into the human again and from the human he's sort of saying well here then we can have everything formed back in humanity's sort of image by our own reason will love of things then we'll have that sense of happiness and enjoyment in creation and enjoyment in the world and what's so problematical as well he says if we focus on the god aspect of things in metaphysics then where precisely everything turns crooked and i call it evil and misanthropic all the teaching about the one the perfect the unmoved the sufficient and the intransitory and to say a sense of when we move towards that metaphysics then we go into the whole idea of something that's again he said in previous sections that's unhealthy for us and we end up precisely in that misanthropic outlook is that we end up precisely with a whole outlook that dislikes humanity and avoids human society altogether and we don't want that we want precisely to focus on humanity and human society and all the joy of the world at the same time as that and so we have Nietzsche then comment on creation and creativity again popping back up in the discussion so that's why it's going to wrap up the wee section then so continuing on creation that is the great redemption from suffering and life's easement but that the creator may exist 
that itself requires suffering and much transformation. Yes, there must be much bitter dying in your life, you creators. Thus, you are advocates and justifiers of all transitoriness. For the creator himself to be the child newborn, he must also be willing to be the mother and endure the mother's pain. Truly, I have gone my way through a hundred souls and through a hundred cradles and birth pangs. I have taken many departures. I know the heartbreaking last hours. But my creative will, my destiny, wants it so. Or, to speak more honestly, my will wants precisely such a destiny. All feeling suffers in me and is in prison. But my willing always comes to me as my liberator and bringer of joy. Willing liberates. That is the true doctrine of will and freedom. Thus, Zarathustra teaches you. No more to will and no more to evaluate and no more to create. Ah, that this great lassitude may ever stay far from me. In knowing and understanding too, I feel only my will's delight in begetting and becoming, and if there be innocence in my knowledge, is because will to begetting is in it. This will lured me away from God and gods, for what would there be to create if gods existed? But again and again it drives me to mankind my ardent creative will, thus it drives the hammer to the stone. Ah, you man, I see an image sleeping in the stone, the image of my visions. Ah, that it must sleep in the hardest, ugliest stone. Now my hammer rages fiercely against its prison. Fragments fly from the stone. What is that to me? I will complete it, for a shadow came to me, the most silent, the lightest of all things once came to me. The beauty of the Superman came to me as a shadow. Ah, my brothers, what are the gods to me now? Thus spoke Zarathustra. So then we have that absolutely fantastic couple of sentences. Well, creation, that is the great redemption from suffering and life's easement. But that the creator may exist, that itself requires suffering and much transformation. And so much is to say that creating allows us to overcome our suffering and the sense of create the creative act itself is incredibly therapeutic and allows us to work through our problems be it in a mental health way or fit whatever problems is going on within our life and is very therapeutic and allows us to basically outpour it all out in a very productive creative way for ourselves whatever that method is painting writing and so on but also, that's not to take away from the importance of suffering in itself, he's saying there, that it allows us to basically reflect upon the human condition. And when we look upon artworks or we read novels, then we're able to see the basically therapeutic nature of the creative process and all the amount of pain potentially that the artist or writers undergone in having outpoured all their emotion and feelings into creating the very thing that they're working on in the first place. And then we're very moved, of course, by whatever we engage with there because of all that outpouring. And it's really to then say, well, if we didn't have all that suffering, then we wouldn't have such a great reflection upon the human condition. We just have something that's just really nice to look at and it's just pretty or picturesque or just really lovely. But it doesn't really get to the depths of things. And what we like to do ultimately is to touch upon and feel an engagement and an interaction with other people through their outpouring of emotion and allowing us to touch upon deeper aspects of our own humanity and it's almost like Nietzsche's just saying I want all that suffering and pains basically in order for me to be able to create in the first place is that whole interaction between 
the creator and the creation is related to the whole mother and child image that's made here that you've got the whole idea of when you're creating you're very much like a mother and then you've got the pains of giving birth exactly to the idea of whatever you're creating in the first place is the child and Nietzsche saying you haven't undergone several different lasting hours of different types of birth pains and so forth bringing forth all the ideas that you do just absolutely fantastic lines as well we get out of this little bit here a fantastic sentence again all feeling suffers in me and is in prison but my willing always comes to me as my liberator and bringer of joy in the sense of that when we're in an emotional turmoil and so forth and we can be really down ultimately your whole act of getting through that in the first place through creating whatever it is allows you to liberate yourself from all that suffering and precisely bring yourself happiness and joy through working through all that and you have that whole sense of there like creating and sculpting something is like ultimately chiseling away hammer to the stone in order to try and batter away a big marble block or whatever it is is a metaphor he's using in there to chip 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 away it's not going to be something that's easy but ultimately you're going to work at it you're going to make it crack crumble and eventually you're going to unleash that idea upon everyone and what a liberating experience it will be once you've worked through all that and you've chipped away at the rock and look at the amount of time effort and hard work that you have all right in front of you and then that again ties into the little last section as well and we have that fun another fantastic line this has lured me away from God and gods for what would there be to create if gods existed and to say the sense of well if gods did exist then everything would already be absolutely perfect and what need would there be for humanity to create anything but that's precisely the point that Nietzsche says is that when we create precisely then we have a wonderful reflection upon our own act and creative act and process and liberation of course and working through potential problems that we're having as well and then we have all that outpouring and reflection upon ourselves and reflection upon humanity but wouldn't that all be taken away almost he's saying here if gods did exist because then the gods could just literally click their fingers and make that all just exist in the first place but it's almost to say well that would in itself deny the very creative act and the therapeutic nature of creativity because it's through working through all that then we get all so much outpouring and that's just you know we can feel that through reading it and looking at paintings and novels and so forth and of all what we just were presented with is just a beautiful image or just a beautiful text but nothing really anything deeper going on then we wouldn't really get anything out of that it would just be just sort of a blank idealistic perfect picture let's say completely blank emotionalist and you could say like if you can view humanity like as in the form of just mannequins just these idealistic objects completely emotionalist stuck in a pose and so forth nothing going on and for examples for this section you could of course go into the lives of artists and writers and so forth all struggling through problems in their lives such as Vincent van Gogh is of course a famous example or you can have Stephen King as a writer going through all the problems that he had with drug use and alcoholism and then overcoming all that as well but I thought a really fun film example to not focus on artists or writers but rather relationships and the importance of bad moments in a relationship as much as well as the good ones as well is all really good for our relationship as a whole and we can view the importance of that of course in the movie sunshine of the spotless mind which is from 2004 starring jim carrey and kate winslet so let's have a little discussion of the plot then and this is taken from Wikipedia. Shy, soft-spoken Joel Barish and unrestrained free spirit Clementine Krusinski met on a Long Island railroad train from Montauk 
to Rockville Centre. Both had felt the need to travel to Montauk that day, and they almost immediately connect, feeling drawn to each other despite their contrasts and personalities. Although Joel and Clementine do not realise it, they are former lovers, now separated after having dated for two years. After a fight, Clementine had hired the New York City firm, Lacuna Inc., to erase all her memories of their relationship. Upon discovering this from his friend Robin Carey, Joel had been angered and saddened, deciding to undergo the procedure himself, a process that took place while he slept. The narrative subsequently takes place in Joel's mind during this memory eraser procedure. Joel finds himself revisiting his memories of Clementine in reverse and experiencing their erasure starting from the downfall of their relationship and as he comes across happier memories of Clementine early in their relationship, he attempts to preserve at least some memory of her and his love for her, trying to evade the procedure by taking his idealized memory of Clementine into memories not linked to her and attempting to wake up and stop the process. Despite his efforts, the technician successfully erases memories. Joel comes to the last remaining memory of Clementine, the day he had first met her at a beach house in Montauk. As the memory disintegrates around them, she tells him to meet her in Montauk. This leads both to Joel and Clementine traveling to Montauk without understanding why they feel the need to, where they subsequently meet on the train. A separate story arc occurs during Joel's memory erasure revolving around Lacuna's employees. Patrick, one of the Lacuna technicians performing the erasure, uses Joel's memories and mementos of Clementine to seduce her and date her in the present. Mary, the Lacuna receptionist, is dating another technician, Stan, but has feelings for the head of Lacuna, Dr. Howard Merzewak who is married. During Joel's memory wipe, Mary discovers she had had an affair with Dr. Merzawak and agreed to have the affair erased from her memory after Dr. Merzawak's wife found out. Devastated by this discovery and the power of this procedure, Mary quits her job and steals the company's records, mailing all of Lacuna's clients, the tapes of each client recounting their memories to be erased. In the present, Joel and Clementine meet at the Montauk train station and are eager to begin what appears to be a new and exciting relationship. When they both find their lacuna records mailed to them by Mary, they are shocked and disturbed by the bitter memories they have of each other. Clementine attempts to leave, saying the relationship could end up going the same way as it did in the tapes, but Joel pleads with her sensing their deep connection. They realize that the flaws in the relationship are inevitable, but decide that they are meant to be together nonetheless. So absolutely fantastic movie as well. And I think that's a really deep point as well. When we think about relationships, people would love to have the idealistic relationship. That's to say, completely perfect, absolutely spotless, let's say. Everybody's living an absolutely happy existence, no arguments whatsoever, no flaws. We both get on absolutely fantastically together. But of course, that's living in a complete idealistic state. And there's going to be times when there's going to be clashes, conflicts, arguments. Now, is that something that is going to ultimately lead towards both parties end in the relationship potentially but of course that's the whole point about arguments and that is it's quite a healthy and natural thing for us to do and it's not ultimately something that's negative it's something that people need to work through and get over is problems and that's the whole point is about the importance about the flaws here is that we can't just shove them under the carpet and it's ultimately the fact is that the flaws are as important uh, to a relationship as the perfections are and it's all let's say the little things that annoy us about another person is equally as important to that person as all the fantastic things let's say like they do really disgusting things like pick their nose or bite their toenails and so forth and you could maybe say well oh wouldn't it be perfect if they didn't do that but ultimately when we think about relationships as a whole and so forth 
And what's so important about the film is that when you try to then say, well, if you come out of an incredibly turbulent and destructive relationship, wouldn't it be great just to go and erase all that altogether like you have the chance to in the movie? And it's really like, well, no, you shouldn't do that. Despite how hurt you may be, despite how upset you might be at the time and how hurting you are it's ultimately well to say well that's going to develop you as a person and it's going to help you develop your relationships in the future and your whole idea of yourself and other people and so forth it's not something that's going to just be easily as just an erasable thing and in fact it's something that we should have is an important point in our life an example in which we can say this is a an enabling experience for us to develop as a person here and we should never just view it as just a wholly negative experience and it's from that point as well that beautiful line there at the end of the wikipedia thing on the plot the realization that the flaws are inevitable but nevertheless are meant to be together to say well that's the sense in which kate winslet's character clementine tries to have that whole point to say well we're gonna repeat potentially the same problems let's just avoid going together in a relationship altogether and then well jim carrey's whole counter argument to say well so what so what if we have a horrible argument and so forth that's absolutely fine we're gonna hit those speed bumps in the road as it happens but we as people should have the power to overcome that and work through it together many thanks for listening to the episode i hope you enjoyed my discussion of the sections the child with the mirror and blissful islands in Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Feel free to drop me an email at my address, dissectingphilosophy at gmail.com, and I can be also found on Twitter at I am a rubberman. Many thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time.